see where we are with all the Advent planning and stuff. So, for example, for people who, like, have a tree, or you have a tree cut down and you put it up, or you have a plastic tree, or you got some lights, how many of you guys have already hung up your decorations? Raise your hands. Okay, that's pretty good. That's about a third. And what about the rest of you guys? What do you guys have been doing? Okay. What, what about Christmas cards? Some of us, every year, without fail, we take a photo and we send it to our family and friends, and it, it's got like a little blurb, like a little update on how we're doing. How many of you guys have already taken the photo shoot and you've maybe been stuffing them in envelopes already? It's the same people who are raised up their hands to the Christmas tree. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, some of you actually put in a newsletter, right? I just want you to know, I just finished my newsletter like days ago, okay? Days ago. Rana put me up to it and it's done. It's done. Now, how many of you guys are just getting stressed out having me ask you these questions? Raise your hand. Oh, okay, maybe I better stop. But I have one more. I have one more. How many of you guys have done, you're finished, you're shopping, no, I haven't. I definitely haven't. <laughs> oh, none of you guys have. But, but some of us have probably started, right? Now, back to the first question. It, there's something about the Advent season, or at least the way we do Advent season, where we're kind of busy and we're kind of distracted, we're kind of harried and we're kind of tired, right? And so the whole season is really about preparing for Jesus, but that's the last thing that we have time for, Right? Now, how many of you would be willing for God to rewrite your Advent season? Let's go, I know that I do it this way, and we got these customs and these traditions, and I'm busy, and I'm distracted. But how many of you guys would be willing to have God rewrite your Advent season? I bet you God doesn't really want you to be distracted and irritable and grumpy. Probably I think he would want you in this season to be kind, to be cherishing family and friends and available to him, right? So, again, how many of you guys would be willing to have God rewrite your Advent season? Maybe saying no to some good things so you can say yes to the best things. It's kind of what we're talking about today as we talk about Mary. Um, we're in the Advent series where we're looking at the character that the characters in the um, beginning chapters of Luke and Matthew, and how God was preparing their hearts to receive Jesus. And so today we're talking about a woman who once said that every generation, including this generation, is going to hear her story and say, wow, that is one lucky, blessed woman. I've got 30 minutes today, just 30 minutes to talk about Mary. Um, and so since her life is full of miracles, I'm going to pull a miracle of my own and end early. You guys are like laughing out of disbelief. Okay, have faith. I'm setting the clock now. That the, the other minutes, were there was no freebies. Um <clears throat> We're going to have more time for worship, okay? And so, since the scripture has already been read, I'm just going to assume that you were listening. But today, when we look closely at Mary's life, there are three things that emerge. 
Call them three lessons or three points or three movements as we think about Mary's life. Number one, God seems to really like to choose small, ordinary, unfavored people. That's the first lesson we're going to learn. God really seems to prefer to choose small, ordinary, unfavored people. Number two, the kind of person who is used powerfully by God has at least two criteria. And that's what we're going to learn from Mary's life. We're going to look closely at her life and two criteria kind of emerge for the kind of person that God uses powerfully. And number three, what do you do when you give your life to God and then things start to fall apart? What do you do when you give your life to God and things start to fall apart? And that's, that's the third and final place we're going to go uh, with, the, with the message today. Now, the first point. The angel comes to Mary and the angel Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one. The word here for favor is charis. One of us, at least one of us, has named our child after this whole concept of charis. Charis means grace. Now, the definition of grace is to give a gift to another person who does not deserve it. That is the essence of grace. It is to give a gift to another person who does not deserve it. And right away in this interaction, there's a truth about God that's being demonstrated. Our God is a God who loves to give gifts away. He loves to bless people. He loves to give them gifts, spiritual and physical blessings and favor. And not only does he love to do this, but he loves to give it to people who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it. And this quality surprises me because ever since I was young, I was taught that blessing comes to those who work hard. And, uh, and so even through high school, you know, blessings come to those who work hard. And so those were the rules that I lived by. And when I became a Christian, I just assumed that God would play by the same rules. And here in this story right away, we're learning God does not play by these rules. He loves to give gifts to people who do not deserve it. Now, I want to kind of demonstrate how God does this. And so I'm just looking around the room and um, I'm looking at Kristen. Okay, Kristen, I want to give you $10. Everyone says, ooh, come on. It's $10. It's my own money here. I'm giving it to Kristen. You know, Kristen, I've gotten to know you better. I want you after church to get a smoothie or a coffee or get a burrito. I want you to be happy. I want you to use that money for your lunch. Okay. Because there's something in me that just wants to give something to Kristen. I, I want to give her again. I want to make her happy. I want, I want her. Now, now she hasn't done anything this morning to earn it. She'd even say hi to me this morning, actually. Now, now there's people, now, now she's like in the back row. There's people in the front row like, Pastor Andrew, I sit in the front row. Sometimes you spit when you talk. <laughs> I'm here, right? I came early. I said hi to you. Ernie's like, I led worship this morning. <laughs> right, but it's, it's my money, right? 
And I can kind of give it to who I want to see happy. I want to see you guys happy too. But right now, I wanted to see Kristen smile. Now, there's something in God that chooses people who haven't earned it. That's what he does. He doesn't play by the rules that you only bless people who have earned it and worked hard. He wants to give. He wants to give. But it's even more than that. He wants to give to people who really don't have much at all. Now, what do we know about Mary? We know that Mary is a teenager. Is that scary? She's about 14 years old, probably. We know that she comes from the town of Nazareth. Now, you guys have heard of the town of Nazareth because you know what happens. You know the story. But I want you to know that during this time, the major players on the scene, they probably have never heard of the town of Nazareth. It was a backwater town. Now, our modern-day scholars were looking through the history books. We're like, it's hard to find a mention of the town of Nazareth. They did find it eventually, but it was hard to find. This woman comes from nowhere. No one's, most people have not heard where she's come from, and she's not educated because poor girls in backwater towns don't get a decent education. She probably can't read or write. Now, I mentioned this already, but we, we know that Mary's also poor. Um, later on, she and Joseph will offer sacrifices, and they'll offer two pigeons. That is the sacrifice and the offering of the poor. Mary is poor. So let's do a quick review. Mary is young. She's 14. Young people don't get a lot of respect, right? At least not in this society. She's a woman, and women don't have the resources or the opportunity of men. That's not fair, but that's, that was the context. She is from a backwater town. She's uneducated. She's not wise in years because she just hasn't lived that long. The major players in history don't even know where she lives, don't even know who she is, and she is poor. Now, I think God could have chosen a lot of women more capable, more qualified, with a lot more going for them than Mary, but he chooses Mary. Why? Well, it does have something to do with Mary, but I think it has a lot more to do with God. Our God is a God who favors unfavored people, small people, unimportant people. And if you're here today and you feel like you don't have a lot going for you, there is good news for you. God favors unfavored people. If you're like, I don't feel favored, I don't feel lucky, I don't feel blessed, there is good news for you. God favors unfavored people. Now, um, I said this before that the interaction uh, with Gabriel representing God and Mary says a lot more about God than it does about Mary, but nevertheless, it does say something about Mary. I think there were some practical reasons why God chose Mary. So if we're asking the question, what does the person that God uses powerfully look like? Mary had two things going for her. Two things going for her. Number one is Mary had faith. Now, when Mary hears the plan that she is going to give birth to God's forever king, and he will have the title of Son of the Most High, she only has one question, just one question, which is, you know, how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? That's a very reasonable question, would you say? It's a very practical question. How is this going to happen? Now, if you look at how Gabriel responds, he basically says, the Holy Spirit 
the power of God overshadow you, you have a boy. Oh, and by the way, there's this illustration of your relative who's really old and God's into doing a lot of miracles. She's going to give birth. And so here's what you need to believe, Mary. There's nothing impossible with God. There is nothing impossible with God. That's all she gets. And Mary's like, okay, that's all I need. I'm good. Now, there's no scientific explanation, like how mechanically does this work, you know? Nothing that's really satisfying her rational mind. God, Holy Spirit, baby, God can do the impossible. And Mary says, okay, that's enough for me. What incredible faith. Do you guys have that kind of faith? That God, there is nothing impossible with God. That if God says it, it is going to happen. Because without faith, the scripture says, it's impossible to please God. Do you have that kind of faith? And Mary inspires us. That is the criteria. That's what God is looking for, for people that he wants to use powerfully. The second thing that God looks for in his people is availability. Now, I want you to look at how Mary responds. It's one of the most beautiful, memorable responses to God's calling on a person's life. She says, behold, I am the Lord's servant. In other words, let me just recognize who I am in front of you. I am your servant. You are the Lord. You command, I do. You say, I obey. You're in charge. I am the servant of the Lord. The reason I'm here, the reason I exist actually to do your will is beautiful. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Mary is betrothed. She's about to marry someone. She's engaged. Now, when you are engaged to another person, that means your life has a plan. In a little under a year, she's going to be married to a guy. They're going to start a family. She's probably going to go and live with him. Her life has a plan. And God comes to her and says, will you allow me to rewrite those plans? I got a much better plan. I got a much better idea. And Mary is like, look, my life is a book. And Lord, you are the author. You write whatever plans, whatever plot you want to write, and I will go with it. God is looking for people who are available to him, who are saying, my life is a book. I offer my life to be rewritten by you, God. I am your servant. May it be to me as your word has declared. I want you guys to imagine that you actually have a book. That all of you have a book. And for this book, it's your life. And every chapter is a season of your life. The question I have for you is, are you willing to take this book of your life and to hand it over to God and to say, God, you write whatever you want to write. Now, Bruce, would you stand up? Bruce, today, only for this next minute, you are representing God. Okay? I know it's a big responsibility. But I'm asking each of you, maybe you've done this before, okay? Are you willing to give God the pen? And then are you willing to take the book of your life, whatever chapter you're in right now, and say, God, you go ahead and you write whatever you want to write in my book. My life is available to be rewritten by you. And then you can go ahead and start writing. 
Yeah. Yeah, just write. Just write it. Write it. Go ahead. I'm ready. Yeah. Now, now this is what happens. There, there's, there's a lot of us, and the very first time that we let God write in our book, maybe that's the time that we become a Christian. We say, you are my Lord. And as the Lord of my life, I, quote-unquote, give you permission to rewrite my life. If you want to make some changes, changes to my priorities, changes to my schedule, changes to... This is my life. But notice, once God starts writing on your life, then every chapter he's writing on your life. What do you have to do with every chapter of your life? You have to hold your book open still and maintain the posture of submission to whatever he writes. You can't be like, you know, I like that part, but when you... No, no, don't, don't do that. Give me the pen back. You can't do that, right? It's the submission and whatever you write, I'm still going to hold my book open so that you can write as you will. Now, some of us... Thank you, Bruce. You're, you're awesome. You're awesome. You're awesome. Um, some of us have opened up our lives to God. But the question for you is today, are you still willing to have that book open? It's not like, oh, I gave him my life, I'm done. It's like I gave him my life in every season, every day, even after every hour, I'm saying, God, it's still your book to write. It's still your book to write. Even this Advent season where it's very, very crazy, very busy, very distracted. Are you willing to say, okay, even in this season, God, when I already have my plans and all my preparations, I'm still holding my book open so that you can write what you want to write. I'll give you an example. Um, a couple days ago, there was a couple in our church that was nice enough to watch my three kids. And so Raynan and I had a date night, okay? Now, we don't get a lot of these, so it was just precious time. Now, we're driving to a restaurant. It's a nice restaurant. Uh, it, was, it was a good restaurant. And normally, Raina's more talkative. And I'm looking at her, and she's just not very talkative. So I said, you know, Raina, are you feeling kind of tired? And she goes, oh, yeah. She's like, you know, I spent till 1.30 last night writing the Christmas cards, right? That's what she said to me. I said, you know something? Why don't you just go ahead and take a nap? She's like, what? No, it's our date night. And so I'm just kidding with her. I'm saying, listen, I'd rather have less of you nice than more of you grumpy. <laughs> no, it was, it was a joke. It was like, ha right? And do you know what she did next? She took a nap. She did. On our date night, she took a nap. But 10 minutes later, she said, like, I, can't, I can't fall asleep. Let's just talk, right? But she did. She went for it. We had a nice time. We had a nice time. It was a renewing time. It was a blessed time. But can you imagine God saying to you, I'd rather have less of you working on this and kind and available to me then more of you making cookies and doing all these cards and feeling grumpy and irritable and not available to me. Could you imagine the author of your book saying that to you during this time? I'd rather you say no to all these good things, even though it's tradition, so you can say yes to the best things that I have in store for you this season. Is that the way you are operating? My life, I'm available to you, God, even this season, even this day. Now, let's continue on with the third movement of Mary. 
And I, I, in preparation for this message, I know that God wants to encourage a lot of people in this room. Because when you look at Mary's life, the question kind of comes up, what do you do when you've surrendered your life to God? You've made your life book available to him. And then you do not like what he writes in that book. You do not like what is going on. Because for Mary, all these things started happening that I'm sure she never hoped for for herself. Her fiancé plans to divorce her. She goes into labor when she's traveling. People are sent to kill her baby. Now, we're going to talk about all this in a second. But what do you do when you give your life book to God? And he writes a chapter, and you're like, I don't like what's in that chapter. You never told me you were going to write this when you asked me to hand over my book to you. Some of us might in our heart of hearts, be saying, I've surrendered my life to God. Why am I still single? Or you're not single and you're married, and you're like, Lord, why am I married to this person? You surrendered your life to God, and then you lost your job, or you got burnt out, or your spouse lost their job, or your spouse lost their faith, or your kids have lost their faith, or they grew up and they just lost interest in God. What do you do when it's like, I gave my life to God, and this is the chapter? What is going on? Some of us are like, I've surrendered to God, and there was a loved one in my life that died, even after many prayers. How could he let that happen? Some of us are like, I don't get it. I surrendered my life to God, and he let the team fail. He let my project fail. He let me fail in my expectations in the exam. He let that relationship fail. How could he do that? I didn't, I failed to get in the school of my choice. I've surrendered to God and he didn't give me the family I wanted, the the boy I wanted, the girl I wanted, or any children at all. What do you do when God writes a chapter and you don't like that chapter? Now, I think there is an amazing hope that comes if you look closely at Mary's life for those who are dissatisfied with the chapter that has been written or is being written. You see, shortly after Mary said yes, Mary got pregnant. And then when Joseph realized that she's a virgin and that she's pregnant, he realized this is not good and I do not believe her. So he made plans to to divorce her in private. You guys know this story. Now, what do you think is going across Mary's mind when she finds out that her husband is going to divorce her? God, you gave me this kid and you've called me to be a single mom? I gotta raise my kid with my parents who don't even believe me? What are you doing? I thought Joseph was gonna be in the picture. What's going on? Now, There is an amazing scripture that I think really summarizes so well what you see time and time again in Mary's life, in our lives, when we go through a chapter that we don't like what's being written. And the verse is from Romans 8, 28. And the verse goes like this. The scripture goes, We know that for those who love God... 
all things work together for good. Now, let me hear you guys say all things. Now, that's so, that, that one word all is so important. Let me hear you guys say all things again. Okay, not just the good things, but the bad things. Not just the victories, but the defeats. Not just the, 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 the wonderful things, but the disappointments, the terrible things, the gut-wrenching things, all things. God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is an amazing promise of God that whatever hardship is going on in your life, God is going to use that hardship for your good. And what you see is that when Joseph walks away, he's like, I'm going to privately divorce Mary, what happens is Joseph has his dream. And in this dream, there's an angel and the angel says, Mary, Mary, what's conceived in her has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he does this complete 180. He has this total change of heart. Now he is a husband and a father who is fully engaged. And he has this amazing story to tell of how he did this 180 of who this kid is going to be and how this kid came about. This is an amazing story of Joseph and his turnaround and his conviction. But this is what God planned. Now, how many times are we on the other side of that thinking, what in the world is going on? And can we trust that God is going to take a bad thing and he's going to work it into a good thing that's for your good? Now, what happens shortly after this is Mary gets married. But can you imagine her wedding And it's so few in attendance because of the shame factor. She's probably trying to manage the shame factor. I guarantee you it was not a wedding of her dreams. And when they will walk by as a couple and she would be pregnant, you imagine people snickering. You imagine like gossiping. This is not what I imagined with my life. And then there's a census. So Mary and Joseph both have to go to Joseph's hometown, which is Bethlehem. So she's traveling, and she goes into labor on the way. And then they get into a hotel. There's no room for them, so she gives birth to Jesus in a barn. Then Herod dispatches his soldiers to kill the baby. The whole family's life is at risk. Imagine at what point Mary was like, what are you doing, God? I didn't sign up for this. And you, you wonder if Mary thought, if I knew it was going to be like this, I never would have said yes. You imagine Mary saying that? And then she gets relocated to Egypt. She's a, I don't know if she knows people. It's a foreign land, a foreign culture, a foreign language. Everything, her whole world is turned upside down. Well, after some time, God brings them back to Nazareth. The boy, Jesus, grows up into being a man. And at the age of 30, he's ready for his public ministry. Now, his public ministry was simply amazing. His speeches were astounding. People, people were like, we've never heard someone preach like this. N- never someone with such authority. His miracles were breathtaking. His love and his kindness to broken people, unparalleled. Thousands and thousands of people are following Jesus. After three years of ministry, Jesus is arrested. He's beaten. He's given a false trial. And the authorities determined that the best way to handle this man is to torture him and to execute him with a criminal's death. Mary was at the foot of the cross watching her son and his life slowly ebb away. This is Mary, his mother. She's watching his son being tortured and suffocating to death on a cross. 
He was spit upon. People are insulting him in the background. He's got patches of the beard pulled out. He's a bloody mess because of all the flogging. What do you think is going off on Mary's mind at that moment? You know, can he, can he, can he get any lower than this? You told me, God, that this was going to be the forever king. And what is this, his throne? What about all the promises you made to me? What about all the hardships we've endured? And this is how it ends? No, I'm wondering, is anyone there? Can anyone relate to how Mary might have been feeling? Are, are you in a place where you're like, what is going on? I don't like this chapter that you're writing. Or this chapter in the past, I don't like how you wrote it. It still pains me now. You know, what is true for Mary is true for us. God takes what is very, very bad, what is awful, and he works it for the good of the people who love him. He will take that mess and he will turn it into something beautiful in your life. And that's what he does here. Mary didn't know it at the time, but after all, afterwards she realized that it was through the death of her son that God was reconciling the world to himself. It was through the death of Jesus that every brokenness in the world was being healed and fixed and every evil thing was being made undone and every evil thing that God's people has done was being forgiven through the cross. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and when he rose, he was saying, look, everyone who believes in me, all my followers will one day rise to new life. There is new hope. There is new promise Everything is going to be new. Why? Because God takes the hardships and the crosses in our life and he makes it into something beautiful like resurrection. That's what he does. So if you're here today and you've got setbacks, you've got disappointments, you've got hardships, God is going to take each one of these and work them for your good. That's his promise. That's what he did with Mary. It's what he did with Jesus, as we did through the cross, and that's what he does for all of you who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So if you know that and you believe he's going to take this and work it for your good, then you have patience in the trial. You're kind and loving to other people. You can trust in God and not flip out with anxiety. You can be poised. You can let go of bitterness and endure through the pain. Why? Because you know that God is taking this and somehow he is working it for your good. That's what he did in the cross. That's what he did with his son. That's what he did with Mary. And that's what he does for all of us who love him and have been called for his purposes. Can you have faith and believe in that, and stand in that, and have hope, even during this Advent season, which for many of us is some of the hardest, it's one of the hardest seasons of the year. Can you stand in that hope that God takes messes, makes them beautiful, that God takes crosses and brings resurrection, that God takes something awful and he works it for your good? Could you all stand? Father, I pray that you would make us people of promise. You have given us this amazing promise 
that you are working all things for the good of those who love you and have been called. I pray that we wouldn't take that scripture and just go, well, that's, that's nice. I, I would like to think that way. But we would actually take that scripture to heart and say, everything, every disappointment, every setback, every hardship, God is going to take all things and work it for the good, for my good. Can we have faith and let go of bitterness? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you guys to remember that scripture. It's Romans 8.28. For those who love God, God works all things for good for those he has called according to his purpose. I want you, when you come to the table, to really let God work in your heart. I have a feeling that God wants to do something in your hearts. There are people here who need to let go of bitterness. You can let go of bitterness when you know that this hardship is God's tool for your good. There are some people who are just confused. You're holding on to some pain from the past. You can actually be healed if you know that that hardship is going to be worked for your good. Some of you, God is going to choose a hardship, and you're going to come up here, and as you're taking communion, you're free to kneel down here to the side, to my right, to my left. Spend as much time with God as you want. No one's going to disturb you. You just be with God, and then you can leave when you want to leave. But I have a feeling that God wants to do some healing. God wants to speak to some people here when we come to the communion table.